This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine to another edition of Wireless Books. Can you not hear me? Uh, no, my headphones seem to um, to be not working at all. Oh, look, they just sort of come in. Oh, oh. they're coming. That, they're c- see, that is what you do. You know when your ears are blocked and you have to make a face, you know, get your mouth really wide and lift your eyebrows and your ears work? That's just the same with your headphones. It's a miracle. Well... Mm, they're coming and going, so um, yes, I'll, I'll just blather on regardless, so I'm oh, sorry. Nothing different <laughs> yeah. then. Oh yes, thank you ever so. <laughs> anyway, we're at the lovely studios of Otago Access Radio in Dunedin, and we are here to talk about books, hopefully, she says hopefully, and we are of course part of the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, which is a library in Dunedin, in the octagon, come on in and join us. You won't regret it. No. Now, <coughs> last time we spoke, I gave Beth a book called yes. Mirrorland, and um, I just want to hear her her opinion of it, because unlike me, she's actually read it all. <laughs> <gasps> Number 36, Westerick Road. Ooh. <laughs> An imposing flat stone house on the outskirts of Edinburgh, a place of curving shadows and crumbling grandeur. But it's what lies under the house that is extraordinary. Mirrorland. A vivid make-believe world that twin sisters Kat and Al created as children. A place of escape. But from what? And also, it was only part of their first life. These girls have had three lives. Oh, crikey. It is a spooky book. And I don't mean in the way of, you know, fantasy or paranormal. So it's not like Stephen King? Oh, oh, yes. She's a follower of Stephen Mm. King. But it's just a great read. Like you think, oh, yes, I I know this now. Mm. But then, as I've said with um, Orway... I had a look thinking, oh, yes, I know it's happening now, but had a look at all the pages left, and I <laughs> thought, oh, no, there's more to come. No, it's a fantastic, a fantastic book. And I know you mentioned about the girl in the mirror. Well, yes, mm. these girls are twins, or are they? Uh, yes, there is a bit of travelling involved in a, in a boat, and the, and the boat goes missing. Or does it? (laughs) (laughs) There are pirates and witches and clowns and tooth fairies. Or are there? There are enemies. Are they? (laughs) There are friends. But are they? I'm really trying not to spoil this book. But I tell you, everyone who is a member of the Athenaeum, come in and line up for this book. You you will not regret it. It's wonderful. Now, who should I think should get this book first? I think Brian. Oh, Katrina. I'm sure Katrina would love this book. 
Okay. <laughs> Okie doke. <laughs> now, because Beth is in charge of me, really, and I do what Beth says, I really, when she says jump, all I say is, how high? How high, Beth? I have brought in Nancy Business. Oh, fantastic. Which, which is um, second book following on from the Nancys, and uh, the author is R.W.R. McDonald. And he actually won an award for the Nancys. He won the Naomi Marsh Award for Best um, First Novel, uh, Crime Novel. Well deserved. Yes. Well deserved. So we are back in... Um, it's really Balclutha, but he calls it um, River Stone, I think. Yeah. So Tippy, Uncle Pike and Devon are back together for Christmas and it's also the first anniversary of Tippy's father's death. And then something amazing, something totally bizarre happens. <laughs> there is an early morning explosion which kills three people and destroys the town hall, which is <laughs> Crikey, well, not what you'd expect. And so the police feel that they've found the the person who was the bomber pretty quickly, but the Nancys are not so convinced. And so they start um, digging around and there's a possibility that it might be a second bomber. And also there's a threat to destroy the Riverstone Bridge, which that that bridge is iconic mm. to to Balclutha. So if somebody blew that up, there would there that, would be words. Yes, yes. And so so there they 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 started up again, but things things are the same, but not. Um, there's problems um, between Uncle Pike and Devon. They seem to be um, fighting with each other, mm. and um, Tippy is learning hard truths about the world and the people she loves the most. Oh, but look, they still go sleuthing though, surely. Well, you know, the, the family that sleuths together stays together. That's that's what I always say. Well, my young friend Michael at work, the boy who was working his way, this is New Year's resolution, 12 books, good book, novels mm. in 12 months. Uh, his next book is going to be The Nancys. I have highly recommended it. Now, I have highly recommended other books to him that he hadn't actually got past the first chapter, which is the right thing to do when you're on a time limit. You don't want to be wasting this time doing it. I think sometimes with a book, just because it doesn't call to you at the moment, sometimes it's best to put it aside and come, if you come back to it, because sometimes you just grow into a book or it's not the right time for you. Now, in this book, um, Nancy Business, is actually um, a little schematic um, Map of Riverstone and um, also where where Tippy lives, and I I know Balclutha not brilliantly well, but I do know it because I had two great aunts who lived there, and we used to go visit them a lot. And one of my great aunts lives where Tippy, or pretty much where Tippy lives, and that's actually when I was reading it the first time. I I was thinking, oh. This is Balclutha. Oh, and this is where my Auntie Gwen lived. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, so it was quite pleasant to actually look at the map and go, yeah, that is where my Auntie Gwen lived. So um, I really must get on to my my cousins and find out if um, he's some sort of ex-neighbour or something. I'm sure they'll have stories to tell about him anyway. Okay, next book. Now, this is the third book of Mike Hollow's um, The Blitz Detective series. And we're now into October 1940, and the bombs are falling in London. And a near 
Ray Warden um, sees a house with a shining light, which is a clear breach of the city's strict blackout rules. So there's no answer at the door. And she's um, a head warden, but apparently um, the wardens aren't allowed to break into houses. They have to to force the blackout, they have to get a policeman or a fireman to do it for them. So she stomps off and finds a fireman and they break into the house and um, close the blackout curtain. And they then, there's a light in the bedroom, so they go in to investigate and they find a young woman on the floor strangled. And then so... No doodlebug did that. Yes. Now... It's complicated because there were a series of gruesome stranglers by somebody who was nicknamed the Soho Strangler who murdered four women a few years ago and had never been caught. So the suspicion is, is, is this person started up again or, or what? And um, yes, yeah, so he follows his nose. And yeah, so the people, it's pretty much... I say sort of a classic old-fashioned detective story with all police procedural, and a lot of our um, members really enjoy them. And um, she, one one of our members, I gave her the first one and she read it, and I gave her the second one, and and she she can't get into she's got mobility issues, so she sends her son in, and he came back with a second one and said, "Oh yes, Mum really enjoyed that, and she she would like to have read more more like that." And I said, "Well, she she read the first one," and he said, "Oh, did she?" So, so anyway, but mm, there's a mystery there. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I know that um, I know where that's going to be going straight to straight to Alison. Now, this is another author, an author who's really famous um, and popular, and it's Donna Leone, who's um, famous for her book set in Venice. Now, now Donna Leone is an American who lives, in a, who or who lived in Venice, because I found out something about her, which I was quite surprised. She no longer lives in Venice. She has moved to Switzerland. But she tends, what she tends to do is spend one week a month in in Venice, so she stays connected. But of course, with the coronavirus last year and this year, she was she was stuck in Switzerland and couldn't get into Venice. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was interesting. Somebody who seemed to be so passionately in love with Venice, but they've moved to Switzerland. Maybe she just got tired of the tourists, or maybe it's a tax dodge because I imagine she's making a bit of money with these books. Um, the um, Brunetti um, books and this is the 30th one of them goodness me well she seems to write about one a, one a year so oh. even so that's, that's oh, yeah so she's been that's doing it for a long long time so maybe yeah maybe she just wants sort of a anyway <laughs> this is um, it starts with two young American uh, women being bad, badly injured in a boating incident joyriding in the Laguna with two young Italians and the the young boys pick them up and and put, take them to hospital, but then they vamoose, and this makes um, Brunetti um, a bit suspicious. He mm. thinks that there's something more to it because if it was an accident, why didn't the the guys hang around? Mm. And so they start to investigate, and they discover that one of the young men works for a man rumored to be involved in more sinister nighttime activities Ooh. in the Laguna. So, and to solve the case, he has to go outside of his jurisdiction because he's just Venice. So he has to enlist the help of the police and the 
well, the, there's two arms that have wider um, jurisdiction over the wider area of Venice. So he has to find out how mu- who he can trust in these two organisations, and how much you know how much of the these unfamiliar colleagues will add to the difficulty of solving this crime. So. Yes, this is going to walk fly out the door because people people love Donna. Have Leon. the uh, have I read her? <laughs> yeah, you have read a few oh, of hers, but I don't think you've read thirty of them. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, I, I Brunetti, I remember that, but mm. I just can't. So it's mm. obviously not something that's really resonated with you. Yeah, but um, have any of those uh, books been made into television or movies? I mean. A no. series of 30, you'd think that. Well, I'm surprised they haven't they? been, but yeah. I guess they would have a big budget because they're sort of in Venice. And oh, difficulty of, oh, There was another Italian um, detective whose name I can't remember, who um, Michael Dibbon wrote about him, and Michael Dibbon, Dibbon has died since. And they did a television series with... Um, Rufus uh, Swindle, I think his well, name. Sewell. Sewell, yeah. as as the um, as the detective, oh. and um, it was very stylish. But I think it was sort of based around Rome, and um, he he sort of swanned around in very well cut Italian suits and looking all moody and drinking drinking um, espressos <laughs> in a very moody Italian way. <laughs> it was great fun, actually. I loved it. <laughs> I could not tell you any of the cries. I just remember how how good he looked. (laughs) Now, we have the latest Jeffrey Deaver, The Final Twist. Now, Jeffrey Deaver, I don't think he's written 30 books, but it it must be close. Mm. And, of course, he famously um, had his... I can't even remember the name of the detective, the guy in the... um, who was paralysed. Yes, um, Lincoln Rhyme. That's Mm. it. Yes, so he's... And he started this new series called the Cult Shore series. And so this is the third one of them. The first one was Goodbye Man and then The Never Game. Oh, gosh, he's... he's I'll take that, yeah. if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> so he's he's in San Francisco hunting for the answer to his father's final riddle, um, an elusive courier bag of evidence. And it will possibly will topple the secretive espionage company Blackbridge. So he thinks that Blackbridge is a pretty bunch of e- bunch of evil people and they're responsible for his father's murder and his brother's disappearance and they can outmaneuver anyone but he has confidence in his ability and thinks he's going to get them down. I have confidence in his ability mm. too. But then there's a complication because he isn't the only one hunting. A kill order turns up in the pocket of a murdered assassin. An entire family will die in 48 hours and he needs to move fast. So, yeah. If can I read it in 48 hours? Will he make it? Oh, he has to. I can take as long as I like. As long <laughs> as it's back by the due date. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Now... Going from all these people who've written at least 30 books, this is um, The Guilt Trip by Sandy Jones, and she's only written, this is her fourth book, and it's, it's on the cover it says The Season's Hottest Thriller. Oh, and what they, season? Winter or? Summer. They oh, went right. away as friends, they came back as suspects. And oh. it's about, they're English people, and there's two, sorry, three sets of couples, and 
five of them have been friends for ages and Ellie is a newcomer to the group mm. and she is um, one of the guy's fiancé. And so th- she seems nice enough and th- so they go off to Portugal together to sort of do a bit of um, pre-wedding bonding with with the sixth member of the group and a sort of a, a getting to know you thing. I mean, they she seems nice. They like her, they think, and and her fiance Wills is happier than he's been in years. So they essentially they're they're pretty disposed to like her, but things start to go a bit weird and um, and they sort of. Ellie sort of has a talent for putting their backs up in, in weird ways and they start to squabble amongst each other and then and then somebody gets killed. And, of course, it has to be one of the the, the five that are left alive. One of them has to be it. Mm-hmm. And so they all, you know, people who have known each other for 30, well, say 20-odd years mm-hmm. suddenly are looking at each other sideways and mm-hmm. you know, how well did they know each other. Mm-hmm. Now... It sounds like a good idea, the book, and I just I'm always searching for new authors and and a new author who's already written three books is like is gold in the library business because it means if she is any good I can go and buy the other three books and so people won't bug me for I can say, Oh yes, I've I've got her other books here. Thank you. Whereas somebody who has this is their first book yeah. and the people come back and say, Oh, that was fantastic. Have you got any more? And you have to say, Well, that's their next that's their first book. So you're gonna have to wait a good 18 months or so. Uh-huh. Oh no, great. Oh, excellent, uh, excellent buying this month. Christine, I approve. Um, should we go to a sting before we um, oh, head to... Oh, why not? Yes. Wow, where's the button? Oh, just joking. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz That's Dunedin A T H. E-N-A-E-U-M dot org dot NZ And back we are. Now, Scribes is the demolishing of Scribes, the building, uh, which was a well-known bookshop. It's been in the news recently and I used to have a summer tradition of going to Scribes and coming out with a, an armful of books each each summer holiday and I brought this book called Final, Final Chapters, How Famous Authors Died and it's by um, Jim Bernard and I thought, oh, this would be good um, source material for the radio show and then I've never used it and so I sort of thought, oh, I should really have a look at this again and so I picked up the, the first um, book and the because he's divided it into different um, historical sections. So we start with the classical age. And Aeschylus was one of the three great Greek playwrights. And now I have to admit, some of some of these names I know how to pronounce and others I have no idea. And I, so I've been on to um, how to pronounce on the internet. So I'm, I'm phonetically... You're pretty jolly polished, is what you're saying. No, you're going I'm, to be I'm, polished. Well, hopefully, <laughs> but I will probably muck it up. So I apologise in advance. Well, for, I hope we, there's a Greek scholar in our listenership because it would be lovely to get some. Well, if there's a Greek scholar, I would suggest you go and make a cup of – get yourself a stiff whiskey and fast. <laughs> you're about to be wincing. Now – Aeschylus um, was born in, when was he born? Um, 525 BC. So two and a half, 
thousand years ago. So that's quite a way back. But he and he wrote um, up to ninety plays, only seven of which have been found. And he was quite a mild mannered person, but um, he wrote these um, Greek tragedies or historic. Um, plays which are full of, um, let's see, incestuous sex, violence, um, cannibalism and gory deaths, everything that you want. <laughs> <laughs> and so he he wrote a lot of um, things about the lead up or, or the, and the aftermath of the Trojan War. And so, so of course, he doesn't – so Paris took um, Helen of Troy and took – Oh, and took her off to Troy, and she she'd been married, and it, this is sort of weird. It's not her husband who sort of chases her, or is very keen on chasing her. It's her husband's brother, Agamemnon, and they he brought this big fleet of Greek vessels, and then they were becalmed and couldn't leave the leave Greece and sail across to Troy. So he. He petitioned the gods, and the gods said he would have to make a sacrifice of his daughter. And so he sacrificed his daughter, and then he took off on his merry way, and then they were stuck in Troy for 10 years. Meanwhile, his wife, Clytemnestra, was furious with him for killing killing their daughter, and she, um, she took on a lover. And meanwhile, back in, in Troy... Um, the princess of Troy, Cassandra, was gifted with the um, – she could prophesize, truthfully prophesize the future, but it was a curse because nobody ever believed her. Like, she, I think she told them bringing, bringing Helen here is not a good idea and, oh, bringing that, tro- that horse, that big wooden horse in is not a good idea. And everybody just ignored her. And But she also – on the way back to Greece, and because she was captured by Agamemnon and kept as a sex slave, it's, oh, yes, a handmaiden, okay. um, she prophesied that when we get there, we will all be slaughtered. And he just was, oh, silly, silly girl. And so, of course, when they got back, um, Clytemnestra and her lover, um, now I have to find this. Um, Thyasis, Thyatis, sorry, Thyatis, um, they murdered Agamemnon and his and his um, train of or his, you know, all his followers, including Cassandra, just as she prophesied. And actually, um, Aeschylus, he, he wrote about it, and these are the words he gave Cassandra, um, contemplating her beautiful demi- brutal demise. I willingly endure my death and warmly greet the gates of Hades that open for me. Grant me, you gods, a clean blow and an easy fall, free from agony. Let my blood flow smoothly from my veins so that I may close close my eyes in peaceful death. So that's the sort of um, stuff that we're we're talking about. But all these Greek tragedies are so complicated, aren't they? Have we got? We haven't really got time to go into no, it because we, you can say how he died because that was the point of the book. Yeah, it? and right. really, he it was he didn't choke on a fishbone. No, no, no right. this is a death that um, has has stood through the ages as one of the all time core blimey deaths. Oh, yeah. Now, he he actually fought in um, the wars of um, Marathon with his brother, 
and uh, that's the battle in which the Greeks defeated the invading Persians under King <coughs> Darius, and his brother died, but he he survived, and he also he did military duty once more against the Persians. This time, led by King Xerxes, um, I think Xerxes the Great, and that was ten years later, and he memorized it or memorialized it in his play The Persians. So anyway, they the in Athens they gave a a once a year prize for the best playwright of um what's the city um Dionysa Dionysa Dionysa, sorry, um prize. And he won it oh, about twenty times, but in the last year of his life, um, his one of his younger rivals, Sophocles, won it, and in a huff, he went off to Sicily f- to have a holiday. Now, according to P- P- Pliny the Elder, who was writing 500 years later, because Pliny the Elder famously died in the eruption of Ves- Vesuvius, um, he had been warned by an oracle that he would be killed by a house falling on him, so he spent as much time as possible in the open, far from any edifices that might collapse. So he was taking a healthful breath of fresh air when it was when what was said to be an eagle, but more likely to be a vulture, dropped a turtle on his glistening bald head, and which the not so eagle eyed bird mistook for a rock. So bearded vultures are known to pick up box turtles and drop them from great heights onto large rocks with remarkable accuracy in order to get the juicy meat inside. The turtle house that was dropped reportedly remained intact, but alas, the old playwright's head did not. So he was buried in the island with a grave that bore an epitaph that he composed for himself. In this tomb where the wheat fields of Glea rise... Aeschylus, sorry, of Athens. He fought in the hallowed precincts of Marathon, which can speak of his valour, which is remembered so well by the long-haired Persians. So part of this thing is quite often authors um, bring make up their own epitaphs, and so that's quite often included in it. So, but that's such a weird and memorable death that it's... It's just, you know, nobody else has died like that as far as I know. That's lovely, Christine. Thank you. And until next time, everyone. That's classics for you. Ah, happy reading. Yes, happy the reading. The Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.